I'm with Wolf Melling. Hi, Wolf. Hi. So, you're a medical doctor, and uh, you're also very interested, a lot of your work is about um, um, pain, and uh, maybe the psychosomatic part of it. What, what brought you there? Um, I think the main driver was my own back pain. When I was 27, and I was a very young physician on the way to become an internist, internal medicine doc in Germany, I had so much back pain that I was in sciatica that uh, everybody wanted to do surgery on me, and um, I just couldn't believe that uh, at 20, age 27 I have to be crippled in a way by surgery and had as a student in medicine I had read Wilhelm Reich you know the mm-hmm. of orgasm and I remembered you know wow there was all this psychological stuff you know that they have written about in the 30s uh, how that was related to muscle tension for example and I felt like this back pain has all to do with the muscles so and I and that, at that time, when I looked for somebody who could help me other than just surgery, and this, this was age 27, so not mm. So that brought me, and then, then my, my, you know, conventional medicine has a lot of, um, issues. And at that time, uh, this was in the early 70s, mid 70s, Beta blocker was the big thing for the heart, and they made advertisements saying, "We know how heart attacks happen. It's all from stress. Therefore, you have to take beta blockers." Mm. And I was so upset, you know. Wow, nobody questions, you know, how can you deal with stress in a different way, or get rid of stress, or don't feel stress, or whatever. Everybody thought about pills, so I was frustrated with medicine, mm-hmm. in that respect, and had my own story back pain and that kind of started me on doing some uh, search and I looked for some bioenergetic people and then I went to Utoni that's something that is not very well known here I think it's uh, Gerda Alexander from Denmark at the system and then I found a person who does Middendorf breathwork and that's what I got into the most then at that time mm-hmm. as a normal young doctor, you know, kind of blown away by, you know, how can they, how can they do this with their hands working on my back and how come that I notice whether the therapist is mentally present or is somewhere absent-minded and I felt that through my hands. Wow. I thought, wow, what does that, you know, how does a, a, a medically trained person understand that or or explain that, and I'm talking with colleagues, they said, well, yeah, you're a little funny, you know, talking about these things. <laughs> <laughs> so there was kind of a starting point, and then I got, and then I had a crisis with my medical career, and I was thinking maybe I should do massage, or, and then I actually learned uh, in Germany, it's a different, I learned what osteopaths and chiropractors do. Mm-hmm. 
so that it's in Germany it's called manual medicine, and that is becoming kind of a generic term for this process, or a manual therapy, and even NIH calls it this way now. And as the manual therapists are all totally mechanical, this was not satisfying either, so I got more into, I got, actually I had a title in Germany, you can do a subspecialty. I was at family medicine, which is a four-year training, added a subspecialty in manual medicine, became a teacher for these people, and another subspecialty for psychotherapy. So I have, in Germany, I have the title of psychotherapy too. Okay. Which is, which is a long training, so in parallel to your work, so you, you do courses and you have to pass an exam and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. But so I find myself touched as I hear the story of um, really that um, it's coming from a sense of um, uh, healing the pain and dealing with the pain that is potentially crippling, where essentially um, society diagnoses it as something that uh, has to make you in a sort of cripple and looking for support emotionally in a way physically, practically but also emotionally in seeing that other people have a different conception of it and looking for a breath of fresh air and finding it in a way among other things in something that is about breathing yeah very much so I actually I don't know if you know this woman, Elisa Lippendorf. Uh, mm-hmm. She's in some uh, definitions of body-oriented psychotherapy, for example, like George Downing, I don't know if you know that name. Mm-hmm. He would not consider Middendorf breathwork as psychotherapy because they say, we don't actually need to cognitively work up all the emotional psychological issues. So it's not necessary to verbalize everything that happens. Yeah. And they say breath therapy is neither psychotherapy nor somatic therapy. Actually, we have something through it. <laughs> <laughs> so they say, you know, this is, and, we, and, and as, as a psychosomatically interested physician, I would say this works right at the interface between the two. It's not just either psychotherapy or, you know, it doesn't follow this dichotomy. And so, for your own work, where would you position yourself in the spectrum? Well, my background is, and I kind of cannot really give that up, is medical doctor. Mm -hmm. And I see patients coming with suffering symptoms that they look for understanding through a physician approach. So they want to have a, primarily they want to have a biomechanical explanation mm-hmm. and kind of a, a physical explanation for their pain. But uh, I can best deal with patients who are open-minded enough to also see that there is a relationship in their lifestyle to this uh, story, that they have a history that kind of goes, comes before this pain started, and that um, there's some 
psychological aspects to that pain at least, at least in the course of the pain and how they perceive it. Right, right. So um, that in a way the population or the, the way you engage people is a little different from say the way a psychotherapist engages it. People don't come to us for a psychological component, they come to you for a pain component. Well, I work at the university here. Um, I have a clinic. Uh, I, I run a, I, I'm seeing patients in clinic. And those patients often have seen all their primary care doctors, orthopedic specialists, spine surgeons, neurosurgeons, all this kind of physical therapists. Uh, and then they come and want to hear another opinion from somebody who, uh, this center that I'm working in is called Center for Integrative Medicine. And then they read maybe on the website something about, okay, this is a guy who is looking psychosomatically at pain and has a hands-on approach. So I have like 30 to 60 minutes per patient mm-hmm. and can use, and I, I frame my approach under the subject of manual medicine. So I offer myself as a medical medicine service provider, mm-hmm. as a physician that's why it's medical manual medicine, not just manual therapy. Mm-hmm. And uh, they come to me also expecting that I have neurological examination skills and understand the entire language physicians speak in when they discuss with patients, you know, surgical options, for example, mm-hmm. or non-surgical options. So I have that medical background, understand I've been in spine surgeries, you know, I've seen how they do it. I've assisted in those surgeries. As a physician, you can do that. So I understand a little broader uh, than most physicians uh, what medical options are and what, you know, they don't want to do surgery, for example. That's why they come to me. Right, right. So that's, uh, in a way, uh, uh, as an alternative to surgery, the idea that manual medicine... Anything else. Yeah. Anything else. Yeah. Yeah. So, say, people you see, you see them for, you know, the, 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 the session lasts 50 or 60 minutes. Um, is there uh, a course of treatment where you see them for many sessions? Uh, is, and is the course of treatment mostly something that you do with manual medicine, or is there also some talk and some cognitive aspect to it? Yeah, yeah. Actually... Try to pick the patient up where they are. So it's very different. Some get referred by other physicians who know about our clinic or me. Some come out of their own motivation and some are expecting me to do a spinal manipulation mm-hmm. and that this breaks through their problem and then they are done. And some come to me knowing, you know, nothing works. You know, what do you have to offer? And then I say, uh, let's examine you first. Let's hear your story. Maybe I can help you. Maybe I can try to help you. Maybe I cannot help you at all. You know, some patients come with years of narcotic medications and already had surgery. And then I say, well, uh, I don't have enough time and not in, in my, you know, I have only a certain amount of hours per week and I'm already booked pretty much until the summer. In order for you to get any improvement, you should go to a good body worker or physical therapist. I 
can maybe give you some names, but that's not what I can do really. Uh-huh. And some people I can say, okay, let's do three sessions, see what we get, reevaluate, and if they are willing to wait, for example, for two months or so before we can set regular appointments every once a week or so. I see some patients actually over years once a week, and I see some patients just sporadically every four months once. It varies a lot. It varies depending on on the on their stories, you know, some patients need to get into their body, just to feel their body, and not being manually manipulated. And some people benefit a lot from touch, and some other people need to reframe their thinking. You know, that mm-hmm. it's very depends on the people, on the person. So. I, talking with you, I know this. <laughs> wasn't so aware of that. That I have a whole spectrum of options, and yeah. uh, come off uh, fall on different places on that spectrum. So you know, it's it's very. Uh, I think any of us, if we were asked, in a way, would have that same thing. Of uh, we we behave differently with different people. We have a whole spectrum, yeah. and so it feels nice to have that acknowledged. In uh, in the case of your practice, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, which ones? Which, what would be a good, uh, you know, to 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 get a sense, a flavor of how you work? You know, understanding that you work very differently with different people and different situations. Could we just take maybe a case that would give us some sense of one of the ways you approach things? Yeah. So, let's see. There's a guy. I mean, the people, yeah, very, very, okay, let's say an example. There's a guy coming in, he's 84, 40 years of hip pain, <clears throat> about to go to another orthopedist for another shot into his hip joint. It doesn't really, um, nothing has helped so far. He has had a bursectomy. There's a bursa on the side of the hip uh, that can cause lots of pain. He has seen all the best surgeons in town. He himself is a professor of history, hmm. runs a big company, uh, kind of one of these learning universities that you can uh, in, enroll in and get a degree on the Internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, very smart guy, uh, but not that young anymore. So he's in his 80s, you know, totally different generation. I'm, for me, it's the generation of my father's. Mm-hmm comes in with this chronic pain and say, well, you're funny, you know, you have 40 years of pain, what do you think what I can do? Mm-hmm. Uh, examine him and find uh, what they call in, uh, in the physical therapy world a trigger point. Uh, I don't know if you know these mm-hmm. terms. It's a, in, within the muscles, it's a, it's a defined uh, local section of a muscle that when you put your finger on and press on it, it causes a radiating pain moving away from the side of the pressure into a, into a space in your body that's kind of distant to that. And uh, it reproduces the pain experience that he is coming for. And in this case, it was tensor fascia lata. It's kind of a muscle on the side of the leg uh, that was seen to be, with the exam, the main source of pain. 
which is very similar. They, some people call it a muscle that causes a pain that's almost the same as a bursitis. That's mm -hmm. the, the bursitis surgery without helping him. Uh, and uh, this guy comes actually uh, is a professor in the state, but he comes very casual with tennis shoes, for example. And um, okay, I, I, I have him laid down. I have a student with me who I'm kind of who's kind of a, a Student following me, trying to learn what what we do in this kind of funny medicine we do, <laughs> um, and I have him lay on the side. And as he is already uh, an older guy, he has had some experience in how to relax. So he knows somewhat in the face of pain how he can still relax. So by kind of closing his eyes, uh, focusing somewhat on his breathing, and uh, not distracting himself with thoughts and kind of feeling what's happening and quieting his mind down. So he is an educated guy. He can do that without me coaching him very much. Mm -hmm. I push in a way that the people would do on this trigger point and have him create a feedback circle with me where I say, well, how do you feel that pain? Where does it radiate? All asking him questions, he cannot answer by mental activities. He mm -hmm. has to focus on the pain itself in order to answer that question. So he has to go into perception away from thinking mm -hmm. in order to keep the conversation going with me. So I help him focus on that pain, perceive that pain, get into details about the pain rating. One of the details is that uh, what I know that they perceive their pain in an internal space. You know, their body is kind of has an internal space. There's the external space where the five senses are going to, and then there's the inner sense of your body perceptions. You know, the neurology called okay. proprioception or interoception. So he has to, and he has, to, and people can realize that if you put this in the right words that feeling into the inside is feeling into an inner space. And where in that inner space goes this pain? So they try to f be more specific and detailed. And while I'm doing this with him, in this kind of dialoguing uh, form, all of a sudden, he starts to uh, do jerky movements. Mm -hmm. he, uh, so he was laying on his side, you know, bent hip, bent knees, forward a little bit, like like a little uh, embryo laying there. All of a sudden, getting jerked in his body. You know, and normally physicians would think, "What's going on here?" You know, is that a seizure or mm. something like that? And the uh, and the student next to me almost freaks out. You know, and I ask that patient, "Is it uncomfortable? <laughs> What's happening?" <laughs> <laughs> no, he says, <laughs> fully awake, you know, and uh, no, and, uh, and uh, is, is it, then I ask him, is it okay if I keep doing the pain while you're doing these kind of movements, and yeah, he says, okay, we can, it's kind of an exp exploration that we do together, and he keeps jerking, and I notice that the uh, 
tension of that muscle that I push with my fingers, you know, it's a manual touch, softens under my finger. Uh-huh. So I have a perception of a muscle release under my fingers. And I'm, you know, I'm doing this for more than 30 years now. There is a trained, acquired skill of perception into muscles. So you, when I started this in the beginning, you know, I didn't feel anything, you know. Uh-huh. This other guy tried to show me, you know, feel it now. Is it different or not? And I couldn't feel any difference. Now I can notice when the muscle tension slowly melts in front of my hand, in front uh-huh. of my thumb. So it's not something you can do with tools. You have to really use your own hands for that. And the guy relaxes and says, my pain is 50% less. Uh-huh. Now, it didn't go away, but this is the... Then the next, he goes home, and it's the first night he can sleep through since uh, one and a half years or something. Wow. Comes back a few days later, or a week or two later, and he reports, you know, he had slept and everything. And I say, okay, let's keep doing it. So I, I thought, you're having this for 40 years, we can't do anything, but it looks like there is an, there is an access, there is an approach. Do it again. He jerks again like crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they ask him, "Now, what would what I would ask?" But that's the problem because he's 85 and a man of that generation, going through the wars and everything. Uh, ask him, "Is there any emotion associated to this jerk? Mm-hmm. Do you feel anything but the mechanical the mechanicality of that jerking?" And he says, "No, I don't feel anything." Just the jerks. Then I inquire a little longer, and he says, well, the pain started when I became a professor 40 years back uh, at Ohio State University or somewhere in Kentucky or Kansas. or you know, I don't know these states. I'm German. <laughs> somewhere in the southern Midwest, uh, kind of a blind spot on my landscape, uh, my, my map. And... He didn't know anybody in this town. He was a lonely professor there, studying all young. Uh, and what he did after work was he was running every day uh, with his running shoes that he still kind of wears when he comes. And my idea was uh, that he's running to kind of self-medicate his maybe loneliness or whatever. I asked the student what her perception was as an outsider when she saw this guy jerking there after she overcame the idea that it might be a seizure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what does it look like? Ask her, you know. Mm-hmm. She said, it looks like a crying baby. Mm-hmm. She said that. And I felt, of course, the same. I felt like this is a little kid sitting in front of me who's lonely and helpless and doesn't know what to do. And maybe he was running like crazy in order to get away from his lonely feelings at that time. But this topic we could not talk about. So he was not open to open up the can of worms, you know, of his wow. past and his emotional stories. So in this case, I stayed I kind of as a mechanical therapist. Mm-hmm. Had all these ideas that were not just mine because my... I had the student with me, you know, he, they had the same perceptions. And uh, I thought it was very intriguing to see how a muscle can relax even after 40 years 
and make a significant change in his pain perception. Right, right. So that's a very, very beautiful example. And uh, maybe we can talk a little bit more about it. Um, I mean, I guess first, um, as you said, this I is... Didn't a do psychotherapy on him. No, no, but that's beautiful because as you point out, this is, you know, it's not that you don't do it ever, but in this case you didn't. And yeah. even though you didn't, um, you know, the not doing it was informed by your own uh, awareness of psychological factors and keeping the question in your mind very much. Yes, mm-hmm. So, this would, if this guy wouldn't be so busy, if he would be retired, yeah, he would have a little more time to come back and do regular visits. We could get maybe somewhere closer to reframing his physical uh, understanding of his pain story. Yeah, yeah. But so, so in a way, yes. The first thing that strikes me is, even though you did not talk about emotions, it was very present. Mm-hmm. But so I wanted to maybe slow down a little bit and point out some of the things you said about what happened in the session. And um, I think um, one is um, you were talking about, in a way, something that happened at the beginning naturally for him because he had some training in it, but that you would otherwise have done, which is a sense of um, uh, getting him into more of a relaxation mode. Yeah, one of the main things is that people coming with pain are not able to focus on their own pain. They say, doctor, can you look at my pain? Mm-hmm. Because they kind of have a default system that is helpful for acute pain to distract themselves from pain. They don't really focus attention on their pain perception. They have ruminating thoughts about it, and have kind of a mental access to their pain, and the pain interrupts their daily activities. It's a nuisance that they somehow are forced to focus on against their will, but they don't really want to. Right. Then they have a hard time relaxing in the face of pain. So and what I'm trying to help them is to be present with pain, mm-hmm. really with a full present moment awareness in their pain perception and relax at the same time and that's kind of the biggest challenge kind of for a, for a patient in the medical setting. Yes, yes. So, so really what struck me as you were talking about it is that, um, you know, how to make it possible for them to be present with their pain is there is the part of relaxing. And then there is the part where you uh, continuously direct your attention to the perception, the introception, the proprioception, the inner space, the, the sensation of pain as opposed to the story they tell themselves about the pain or the, uh, yeah. yeah. So stories are coming up, of course, you know, that's what body work does when you touch it, what you know, my memory of Willem Reich, you know, that's why he did it, why he used touch or certain postures in order to stimulate memories or to have uh, traumatic or whatever history emerge in consciousness for these people out of the unconscious, how they call it, right? Mm-hmm. So these, that, so stories show up, you know, people all of a sudden have memories from years back when they walk 
down the street and there was these other kids uh, from their class making fun of them behind them and that's they they come to me for certain pain problems and every time I work on that pain with them the same memory comes in their mind and then they finally tell me about it <laughs> <laughs> wow you know it's so strange you know I never have thought about this since 20 years or they remember how they walked down the schoolyard the stairs and realized oh Jesus you know it's not just play it's work this cool thing mm -hmm. <laughs> and then this this memory comes up when I work on their suboccipital neck tension right, so th they have so stories come up of course and you can do some I mean I some people just want to talk about these things by the way and psychotherapy often is happy with having then this showing up this topic and then work through it uh, cognitively I'm not that interested in that mm -hmm. honestly I, I love these stories and I love the richness that comes up and it colors their experience uh, tremendously and enriches the experience but my focus actually is more back into staying present within their body so that's kind of my right painting, rather than in the story so not the narrative around the symptoms is my goal or my target or my direction that I'm going to it's more their capability of staying present within their body present moment and and, and then what I'm hearing is meditators do yes and what I'm hearing is in staying with present is not so much Avoiding the story of, uh, in the sense that the story refers to in a way what created the original pain or, but, um, I think when you're talking about, um, the relaxing with the pain, the, uh, uh, is about, uh, being able to, um, go directly to feeling the pain as opposed to, uh, mechanisms that are avoiding dealing with the sensation of pain. You're directing people to go exactly where in your body do you feel the pain, how it feels like, um, not avoiding it. Exactly. Yeah, just the opposite of avoidance. Yeah. And um, and and uh, what you were describing in the story of this patient is that as you held him to feeling his pain as opposed to avoiding it or talking about it or feeling around it, uh, then came something that was this jerking movement mm -hmm. that was a discharge of some sort uh, and um, uh, felt like... I felt somewhat comfortable in allowing him to do that because of prior experiences with body work so yeah. and bioenergetics. If I wouldn't have had that, I would have kind of shied away from uh, letting that happen. You know, I would try to avoid those kind of things. Yeah. Physicians are kind of shocked when they see something like that. You know, what the heck is going on here? You know, they don't want to get into those things. And I felt like, well, if he's comfortable with this happening, let's go for it. Yes, and that was exemplified by the student who was there, who felt, yeah. you know, there's something terrible happening. Yeah. But uh, but you made room for it because on the whole you felt that it's not something to be afraid of. It seems to be something that's organically completing uh, what this person needs to be doing. Right. Yes. Mm 
And uh, as it was going on, uh, at some instinctual level, both you and your student had a sense that um, it gave you the sense of a crying baby. Yes. So, uh, so there was also, in a way, as it was happening, something where um, there was a connection with some kind of a meaning that it had or some kind of a completion of something he needed to do. And the result was 50% less pain. I mean, this is pretty striking. That's very striking. Mm. That's very striking. Mm. And, and you can feel it in your under your thumb. Yes. So it's, it's not just a perceptual thing on one side, it's on the side of the patient. And the, what I'm emphasizing is this, uh, when I'm doing this work, with my, I use my hands a lot. I don't always push onto pain. You know, sometimes I just have my hands somewhere in order to allow the tension to be located within the body at a certain area that I want to, where they, for example, low back pain, they always, they all have the problem that they approach their back pain from the top, from the head down, and don't feel their legs very well or their buttocks, or their sacrum, you know, underneath the low back pain. Kind of, I mean, underneath in terms of the standing person, it's lower to the, closer to the ground. They're not connected to the ground. So I try to guide their internal attention to sensation, like I have sciatic pain, they feel the pain, the leg only as pain. They don't feel presence, that there is some connection to the ground, you know, that they still also have. So I have I try to guide them into body areas where they can feel their body and be present there. So present moment awareness of immediate real life experiences, how they feel it. And that's and then I notice for example that the feet get warm, you know, they were cold first and they notice that themselves and and so there is objective changes and it's it's part of a dialogue that I'm creating, and I've, you know, they, I involve them mentally in a given questions that kind of gives them kind of a way, a hook they put their head on. You know, the awareness or their attention goes around in their thinking, you know, in, in circles, and that's they that get out of it. You know, the psychologists call that rumination. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, they, and that needs that's kind of a psychological factor actually for communication of pain or for, or for persistence over the prognosis of pain and that's something you can change in, immediately you, know, you can get them in the clinic session out of their rumination into present moment awareness and that's where the hands are extremely helpful touch has the additional advantage of guiding attention or if two people focus attention on a certain part and they meet together they have contact in that space inside your body where the whole thing is screening in a way for attention right if you meet there together that's a support for their attention and that's why touch is so so powerful if they only think about these things and you guide them, they can feel a certain area into their body 
but then they get into their thoughts and again and they, they they're out of it so continuing touch and refocusing the kind of this kind of like a red string like a ariadna string you know to the labyrinth there so you they keep in present moment presence so so this thought you had a very uh, striking image uh, a little earlier. You talk about the pain, a part of the body that's screaming for attention, and uh, that the uh, you are helping the patient bring present moment awareness to that part, and you are bringing present moment awareness to that part. You're not a tool. You're not a machine. But there's a very strong sense of you being aware, uh, moment by moment, of your pressure and the reaction of the muscle right. yes, yes. so I there to be myself in present moment awareness or have mm-hmm. to actually my my issue is that I'm you know I'm a I'm, I'm a thinker myself and I'm not, I'm not easy pre- in being in present moment awareness like right now I'm talking with you mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm present in my body but using my hands have helped me has helped me to become present myself so it's, I'm actually abusing patients in a way for my own meditation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but that's... A, that, it happens together then. So yeah. it's perfect, it's wonderful. But that's, really a, that's also a very nice touch, you know, in a way a very nice point to make that... Um, um, it's not that mindfulness or present moment awareness is something that is an essential quality that defines people that they have it or don't have it, but it's a practice. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It's something that happens. It's some. It's a. It's the term practice uh, suggests somehow that you can make it or do it. Mm-hmm. In some way, it's yes, you got to do it, but it's you also have to let it happen. So yeah, it's kind of a. It's more emergence and arising rather than doing. Mm-hmm. But you got to approach it, and you got to. Focus a little differently than you know, just thinking, talking on the phone. You know, really yeah, good. yeah, yeah. So as we're coming toward the end of this conversation, maybe um, one way I could think of um, um, concluding it would be to talk a little bit about body awareness. Yeah, my research. Mm-hmm. So I got an NIH grant uh, to my own surprise. Uh, but it was a lot of work uh, to get there, you know, uh, two resubmissions for developing a self-report measure on body awareness. And I'm applying for another grant right now to get an objective measure, a performance measure of breath awareness, which is totally uh, something. Well, it has been used in some way uh, for asthma research, and people never applied that for the body awareness type of stuff. Mm. So my interest is, I think that um, a common denominator of many of these approaches, or a common mediator in those beneficial effects of these techniques, is in training or increase or facilitation of people being in certain modes of body awareness. And body awareness is a term that has been around in medicine only in association with uh, hypervigilance and hypochondriacs and fear and anxiety disorders, a panic disorder. You know, people are aware of body symptoms, 
mm-hmm. to the doctor are in annoyance to the doctor because the doctor said, well, they are crazy, you know, they're all anxious, that's it, and they give them sedative drugs or something. And the uh, and that's how body awareness has commonly been uh, used in if it was used at all. Yeah, it's a problem. It's a problem that has to be cured. Exactly, and it, it's it's close to anxiety. It's a proxy for anxiety, and they use scales for how many of those symptoms and how often do you feel all these symptoms and then they go to a list of 80 symptoms or something and the more symptoms you feel the more anxious you are and that's and then you get on to, there's a cutoff and then okay after this cutoff you got to do therapy or medication so so it's used as a proxy for anxiety and but the people who do body work or body psychotherapy they kind of in their own uh, lingo, you know, use that term body awareness among themselves. Karen tries use self-awareness. Uh, they don't try to s- distinguish the body from the self, and they have some problems with the nomenclature there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But in general, if you would say body is not separate from mind and soul, or whatever you frame it, Focusing on body sensations, uh, you can talk on body awareness of these people. And yoga, tai chi, uh, focusing, for example, as a psychotherapy form, mm-hmm. all this, uh, and telling uh, Alexander work, eutony, sensory awareness. You know, the, ter- the term of sensory awareness, Gindler work, you know, all these therapies, they all use uh, more or less as a common denominator some they talk about body awareness then how they incorporate that into cognitive work psychology is different according to the methods but I think there is a common denominator with the body awareness and so that's why I kind of try to emphasize that so I, I try to create a bridge mm-hmm. also in terminology and language between the medical world and the world that uses body awareness. So it's even massage, you know, there's qualitative studies that show that one of the benefits after massage, also it's not educational, is for the moment after the massage you feel more in your body. Mm-hmm. Or people who just go running, as in workup. And my philosophical more uh, understanding is that in our culture today where we go into computers and virtual reality, movies, narrative stuff, lots of mental lo- uh, thinking, we lose touch with our body. And the trend for getting a massage once a month or going into yoga classes or having yoga as the biggest kind of practice happening now these days, or Tai Chi, kind of the second uh, stuff happening on the on the block that there's an unconscious um, trend or emerging that people say there is something missing if I just sit on the computer all day yeah and that's what the body demands in a way and I'm I think that's some, that's a wonderful trend I think and I'm trying to support research into these methods what, how the benefits come about and the medical community needs to know 
what is the mechanism of action? And they don't understand. Nobody knows. Why is yoga helpful? And the mechanism of action is the scientific term, kind of, how does it work? And I'm proposing increased body awareness. Okay, what is body awareness? You know, how do you measure that? Nobody can measure that. So, mm-hmm. medical science, if you want to make a point there, uh, it's not sufficient just to do clinical studies uh, on yoga how, that they help. You also have to help physicians in getting wrapping their mind around it. You know, why does it help? You know, what what are they really doing? And the neuroscientists, they come kind of along with this term interoception and the meditation research, you know, they talk about interoception as part of what's going on when you meditate. So putting these things kind of together, trying to use the language from neuroscience and apply that to stuff that happens with yoga, for example, mm-hmm. or body-oriented psychotherapy. I'm interested in doing more studies on breathwork, and I think the perception of breathing is one of the most beautiful and fascinating aspects within body awareness. So that's my goal, you know, to help mm-hmm. the alone. Mm. I'm dedicated to my group there. (laughs) 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 Thanks, Wolf. Mm -hmm. You're very welcome. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast. See the website, relationalimplicit.com.